and you have to have sufficient evidence to back up your your claim right right so you have to have the first paper that comes out people will go oh well that's interesting or it may not be interesting and then it'll take three four five six seven eight more to back up the process which can take a decade right mm-hmm. so academia moves very slow in that nature but business moves very quickly right business doesn't need that business goes this is not working we need to change right so if you look at the business side of the NP world you, and you see what's happening is the businesses are not wanting to hire new graduates Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring the foundations of nursing science and practice, including theory, measurement, and methodology. My name is Ian Lane, and I'll be your host. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own and those of my guests. None of the information I share constitutes medical advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Canyon, an advanced practice registered nurse out of the state of Texas here in the United States. John has been a board certified family nurse practitioner for many years. He is a fount of knowledge. He has a wealth of information and he is a very passionate clinician. Jeff, the NP dude had originally introduced me to John's work online and his advocacy for the profession of advanced practice nursing and I have since become quite fond of his enthusiasm. There are are important places in which John and I don't necessarily agree, but our conversations are always pleasant, and I think that his ideas are in many ways transformative and incredibly important. So with that preamble aside, enjoy John Canyon. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up in nursing? How did you become a nurse practitioner? And what made you choose emergency? Okay, that's a whole lot to bite off. Let's start start with the first part. Uh, how did I choose nursing? Well, I was in my third year on my eighth uh, major when I uh, flipped to nursing. I was sitting in a uh, was sitting in a in a in a beach on on the beach in California with my girlfriend at the time and we were having drinks, relaxing on the, on the patio. And one of her friends from high school showed up said he was a CRNA. And at the time I was like, Dude, you're a nurse, really a guy, guys aren't nurses, you know, and this is 20 years ago. You know, it's kind of, it's ridiculous. And he goes, no man, you can make some pretty good money. So I was like, huh, okay. Well, so I, I came back, researched it. Sure. Turns out the agency nursing did pay well and CRNA, CRNA did pay well. So I thought, well, I can do that. And that's how I got into nursing. Uh, it was kind of an interesting thing. And I guess I just gravitated toward emergency medicine because I like variety in what I do. And uh, there's nothing more varied than the ER. You know, it's the old old uh, Forrest Gump thing. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get kind of deal. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting animal that has a variety of things that you can do. And it's, it's satisfactory. You get satisfaction 
often in the emergency department. You know, my, my, it's my favorite procedure to perform in the emergency department of all the things I do, central lines, chest tubes, intubations, all that stuff. My favorite thing in the world to do is the nursemaid's elbow. Oh, really? <laughs> That's, I could see that being very satisfying. It's easy. It's, it's you, you, you big go change. in, click, clunk, you're 10 minutes later, the kid's great. The parents love you. They think you're a hero. It's phenomenal. Yeah. It's the best and most satisfying procedure. I mean, sure, but the chest tube in solves the pneumo. That's great. You know, <laughs> intubating solves the respiratory issues. Oh, that's fine. You know, it, that's that's great. But there's nothing more satisfying than a nursemaid's elbow. Nothing. It's great. I love that. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> yes. So tell us some things that you're particularly passionate about professionally. What like what do you spend the most time thinking about these days? Oh, well, that's changed over time. But these days, education. I am, I am really, really passionate about NP education, and I think it needs to be improved dramatically. I uh, oh, um, I I think okay. So for instance, I'm I'm family trained, right? Mm-hmm. And when I trained, we did we did uh, every a little bit of everything. Okay, so when we trained, we trained to go out and work in the critical access hospital. And you were that was part of your training. You had to go to the critical access hospital. You had to take call. You had to see patients in the hospital. You had to see patients in the emergency department. You know, you had to understand how to do those things. And I think that we have had a severe lack of focus and direction in our profession for some time. And without focus and direction, we can't solve the problems. And there's right now, there's nobody asking if there are any problems. And I think part of that is because we're, as a profession, so focused on full practice authority that we are glancing over any potential or possible problems we're having in our own base education. Education's an issue. It's been an issue. And we are, I think we're glossing over it by our our, uh, lack of focus on education. So we've moved from thinking our education was top notch and and we had some good research back in the early 2000s that showed that we were having uh, good outcomes, but there's not been a lot of research since about 2010. And if you look, the focus of shift in education came about that time from the mainly brick and mortar schools to the more online approach was around that same time frame. And this is not a brick and mortar versus online conversation. So don't please don't think that that's not what this is. Online education can be, can be done exceptionally well. But the focus shifted, in my opinion, from the clinical mindset to an academic mindset. And when you look, and this is from my personal experiences as, as a professor as well. So when you look at, at the education model, for instance, when we were teaching uh, the physical assessment course, right? Every every NP course has a physical assessment or procedure course. When we would teach it before, you would spend your time doing procedures, learning procedures, learning the risks, benefits, and complications of said procedures. Whereas now, there's more focus on writing papers. And it's not necessarily that writing papers is a bad thing, but it's that if you spend the majority of your time on one specific avenue, you're going to become very good at that avenue and you're not going to be good at the other parts. So I think our focus has shifted away. And that's what I mean from clinical to academic. We spend more time doing discussion boards in APA format. 
rather than how do you write a note? How do you write a note that's billable? What do you have? What are the what are the components of of a note that you have to include in order to make sure it's a billable note? Right? To me, whilst being able to write appropriately and at the appropriate level is important, being able to perform the job at a high level is more important, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, and when I've gotten students, I have been very very um, particular about how I how I educate students when I when I uh, when I'm not in the professor mode, when I'm in the clinician mode, um, doing what we call precepting, right? So when I'm precepting, I'm very, very critical of my students. And that sounds bad, but I, my job as a preceptor is to find what you don't know and teach you that. And the only way I can do that is to be critical of your education. And what I've found over the last 10 years is we are lacking in pharmacology and pathophysiology. I appreciate you kind of laying that groundwork. Can you tell me a little bit, like, what prompted your interest in this problem as you see it? Like, what was the inciting incident for you that made you think to yourself, like, this is an issue that needs tackling? And and then maybe secondarily to that, like, why why are you gung-ho to tackle it? Like, what makes you want to take on that extra stress? Well, I don't know that there was a defining moment uh, it probably was more of a straw that broke the camel's back kind of deal. We had, uh, um, there was a, a, a university that used my services as a preceptor quite frequently. And, um, the, the, uh, uh, they, they no longer use my services because I was honest with their students and told them that they weren't getting enough clinical education that their, their, um, Let's put it this way. I'm going to try and simplify this. I do I do a couple of exercises with my students when they come on. The very first thing I do whenever I get any student, no matter what their progress is, is take them and do a physical assessment. And when you get to where you're having to teach the students who come in their last semester and supposed to graduate next month how to do a physical exam because they can't properly perform what it's a problem. When you go to when they come to give you report on a patient and don't know how to tell you what's going on with the patient, they don't know how to properly give you report on the patient. It's a problem when they don't know how to properly give you a differential for common complaints like chest pain. It's a problem. You know, when they don't understand the pathophysiology or pharmacology of what's going on with the patient in basic complaints, it's a problem. So those things kind of just built up over time. And so Essentially, I was I had gotten on Facebook and was in some of these Facebook groups, and um, it's the, the multitude of in nurse practitioner Facebook groups on on uh, on Facebook, and the 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 kinds of questions that were being asked Ian were so basic they should have been covered like day one pathophysiology kind of things, mm. and this is by people who are already out practicing, okay, and that that kind of spawned into some conversations with some other NPs. Um, Jeff, the NP dude, uh, who had a, has a podcast you're familiar with, um, has spawned a conversation with him and another NP from uh, the East, the East coast. And it's it, we sat around, got to talking about it. And next thing you know, we've got an entity going and are, are trying to solve the problem. And it, that ruffled a lot of feathers of the, of the, uh, entities that had been in place for a while. Okay. 
And it's, it, to me, we have to save our profession. And in order to save our profession and to make sure we're producing people at the highest quality level, we need to ensure that they're getting the best education possible. And we can't ensure we're getting the best education possible if we're not hypercritical of our education process. And we have to look at, in, in order to do that, you have to be aggressive about how you are attacking the education and looking at it and, and how we're evaluating what our, our goals of education are, right? Like right now, the biggest evaluator for education is how, how at what rate do you pass boards, right? Mm-hmm. What percentage of your students pass boards? That's the major evaluator. And if you've got a high percentage, you do well, you continue to be accredited, right? But if you look at our boards, our boards are not difficult, okay? Our boards are a basic entry to practice board exam. That's that's the uh, the way that I look at that. And so when we look at our graduates, we need to figure out how do we evaluate graduates to determine whether or not they are um, being successful, right? And that's a that's a difficult question too. But one, we look at the, the the ways that we're judged as a profession. We look at the ways that we're compared to other professions that are doing similar things. And when we evaluate those things, we have to determine what's going to make good options. And right now, I don't think we're being critical enough of our education process, and we're not looking at at, at making it better. Now there is some new NCF criteria coming out for NP schools. But I don't think that um, the people who are looking at making the changes are not the ones who need to be doing it. We need to we need to have a communication between academia and our clinicians, and it's just not there. Right. Doesn't mean that academics aren't clinicians, but academics are experts at academia. Right. They are clinicians also, but clinicians are clinicians, and we need to get their opinion as well, and we don't. Hmm. I mean, there is, there's actually a, a pretty substantive history in the nursing literature about this chasm between clinical work and pra- uh, clinical practice and academics. And it's been talked about for a long time um, as being this sort of divide. So I definitely hear you. I think a lot of people will, that will resonate with them. And uh, I agree that that's a problem. It's the precise reason why I'm interested in both the DMP and the PhD, but I feel like that's a conversation for a different day. So let me back up for a moment and just say, (laughs) you know, it's interesting because I can see people saying something to, to the effect of like, there's now 45 or 50 years of data showing the NP is safe and effective and everything's kosher. You know, why, why ruffle these feathers? So I guess I would say like in response to that, what do you think has changed over the last several years? I think you mentioned something about since like 2010. What do you see as being the problem? Is it, I, I, what I'm hearing you say is that it feels like a lack of preparation in like pathophysiology, but why are people confused about this when it's po- poised as being at odds with what the research shows about nurse practitioners and, you know, what's, what am I missing? Or what are people? Well, here's the thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about 10 years ago, the consensus model came, right? Which is absolutely the worst document ever made by by the NP world. Hmm. By far. Before you. And this is is something that I get dragged, I get into discussions with, with my academic friends, and they get their feathers ruffled on this. And we have to say that the consensus model has failed. So go ahead and tell people what the consensus model is in case they don't know. 
Okay, so the consensus model was brought around in order to clarify uh, the role of the nurse practitioner and to be a unifying document to provide legislative bodies with a guide for how nurse practitioners were to be legislated as well. Okay, mm -hmm. and it has failed miserably on all counts for the NP side. Now, again, they included CNSs and uh, mis midwives and CRNAs, and my knowledge on their fields is not in existence. So I, I can't speak to how successful or unsuccessful it's been for them. But the consensus model has been around for over a decade, and since that time, it has been adopted fully by less than half the states. And the reason is, is it's just not a good document. It's not a good document. It is very vague and open to wide, wide swaths of interpretation. And this goes back to scope of practice. Okay, so nurse practitioner scope of practice is identified on three things, population focus, education, and training. Okay, that's it. Anybody who adds any other clarifying words or adjectives is trying to sell you something. Okay. So what's happened is when the consensus model came out, then people started adding clarifying adjectives to already issued licensure. So part of the problem is the uh, acute care world, um, their jobs were, be were being taken by family nurse practitioners because the family nurse practitioner had a population focus that could handle that area. They just needed education and training. So if they had education and training in that world, then they could fit according to scope of practice. Then what happened is the gerontology NPs essentially were it, it long story short, the adult and the gerontology world combined right. in order to try and save them. And they started trying to limit scope of practice. Okay. That's the first mistake they ever made. Okay. This is even there's now there is one good, there are a couple good spots in the consensus model. The whole thing is not, not bad, but there are a couple good spots. And one of them, there's a, a diagram that shows base education as the bottom of the pyramid. And as you gain more education, you specialize and move up this pyramid essentially. So if you were a family and then you got, um, additional education and training for whatever else, then you moved up the pyramid. Okay. But scope of practice is very difficult for many in our profession and outside our profession to understand, because if you're an FNP and I'm an FNP, okay, I'm working in emergency medicine. I'm doing critical procedures. I work in areas where I, I solo cover emergency departments and you work in a family practice They'll come to you and say, well, you're an F&P, he's an F&P, I want you to cover the emergency department. And the answer is, without additional education and training, you can't do that. Right. So what's happened is academia has started adding the words formal education, formal training, okay, which is fine, but it's how do you do, define formal education, formal training? Well, how they're defining it is you need to go back to school and get another certification. And the problem with that is, to work anywhere, you would need multiple certifications, okay? And that's where you get into this hazy kind of problem where individual states are now trying to change their scope of practice laws in order to fit different areas. So when I graduated, they told us, if you did anything else, had any other education, you need to make sure that you save that education 
so you can present it should anything happen. For instance, let's say that I'm a, I'm a family nurse practitioner, you're a family nurse practitioner, I'm working in the clinic, and the doc says, you know, Ian, you're really, really smart. I think we can start teaching you how to do emergency medicine. Okay, so he takes you over and starts training you how to do emergency medicine. Well, what we would do is keep a record of what we trained on and have the doc sign off that we were trained on that in addition to. Okay, they're saying that that's no longer a feasible mechanism of, of education and training. And the problem with things like that is, for instance, the new SLGT uh, anti-diabetic medications, right? Oh, right, right. So those have now since come out. So how do I get formal education on those? Lyrica now has a new a new uh, indication. It's for uh, fibromyalgia. So do you need to go back and get an additional certification to write Lyrica for fibromyalgia? I mean, you're getting into a into a conundrum where we get we're we're making ourselves so confusing that it makes it to where credentialing bodies don't know what to do with us. Insurance boards don't know what to do with us because we're confusing so much, confounding so much information that it makes it difficult to understand what somebody can and can't do. And hell, even nursing boys are having hard times with it. So I, I mean, I've been listening to this conversation periodically, you know, uh, over the last couple of years, sort of just kind of taking a peek at what people are saying. And one of the things I've seen a lot is the. I feel like the epicenter of this problem seems to be the emergency department for exactly the reason you're talking about. And one of the examples that I've always given people is, you know, the family nurse practitioner who's been licensed and trained for 25 years. The consensus model came out, what was it, 2010? 2010, yeah. So, um, you know, after 2010, they had already been practicing for 15 years or whatever it is. You know, so um, then suddenly they have to go back and get another series let me, of, let, me, let me ask you one question before you continue yeah which np can, can work in the emergency department which np recognized by the consensus model can work in the emergency department well hypothetically it's <laughs> it should be acute care but the issue with that of course is pediatrics if you don't have pediatric training then you have to be relegated to an adult emergency department and what, what percent of what percent of emergency departments are adult only? Oh gosh, I I'm gonna guess it's less, less than ten percent, less than one percent. Holy cow! Less than one percent are adult only. Okay, so you when you when you look at that, if you are training to work in an emergency department and you have an acute care NP, not a lot of options there. Okay, now when you look at it, the other thing that acute cares generally don't get is obstetrics training. Whereas with my family degree, we trained how to do precipitous deliveries. Okay, so if, if you take out you take out OB, you take out pediatrics, that's forty percent of any average emergency department. Because if you walk in the room and the patient is female, still has your uterus and is having abdominal pain, you can't see the patient. But let's extrapolate that a little bit further. Which NP can work in the urgent care? The you, FNP you see, would be well suited for that. that. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, so which NP can work for an orthopedist? Right. I mean, you're getting into a into a world where what happens, what ends up happening is people end up doing stuff they're not supposed to do and crossing their fingers that they don't get in trouble. Well, that and they, there's an inverse of this problem too, John, which I'm sure that you're well aware of, which is say I'm the orthopedist and I want to hire an NP and it's too confusing, I might as well just hire a PA. 
and that has I actually um, have been talking with some emergency departments whose solution to the NP problem is just hire PAs instead. Hmm. But are PAs allowed to work anywhere? Yeah, their scope allows them to work in any field, but they have to have additional education and training as well, because whilst they have a broad base, it's not specifically trained. So we get into an issue where it's it's a confounding problem to where, I mean, even if you go, none of it makes sense. Let me ask you. Because all we're doing is putting all of ourselves at risk. If you you ask what what you're in, in the acute care program, what is your bottom age limit? Uh, well, so that's that's actually a conversation that I've had with Jeff before as well, and it's very murky because I've heard people say 16, I've heard people say 20, I've heard people say 12. I don't actually know that there is some consensus, and I've looked in the literature, and that's a little bit scary, to be completely honest. Yeah, so so if the if the 15-year-old comes in, can you take care of him? I would say I, yes, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, legally, it's like... No, I mean... Right. Yes, no. I mean, it's it. So it, you get into a, in a situation where it becomes ex, very, very murky and problematic, right? right? So pediatrics. What's the upper age limit for a pediatric NP? I don't actually know that. I mean, my assumption was that it about twenty one, unless they have a congenital condition or something. It's this exact same answer as the as the adult NP. Interesting. It's not really defined. You know, some people say 18, some people say 21, some people say 15, some of them won't do anything over 12. You know, it just, it's not really a well-defined thing. The only one that's really well-defined is family, is the uh, neonatal, the NICU, the NICU and peace. Oh, I see. They're the only ones that have really defined age limits. Okay. And my, so the other problem is, is you get FNPs, they can do pediatrics, right? They can do women's health. They can do... I mean, so you get this weird, murky kind of, well, it's not. And then uh, the consensus model adds a confounder. One, there's one line in the entire consensus model about primary care. And then they try and extrapolate that one phrase to family nurse practitioners or PD nurse practitioners. or And it's, it's the way that the consensus model is written is to have a base knowledge. So there should have been... Uh, a base NP, and then the acute care is supposed to be a differential on top of that. So it's supposed to be additional knowledge gained on top of it. But what they've done is changed it to where the acute care is a base, which it's not. It's mm. not supposed to be based off the consensus model. That's a whole other conversation. But it's the whole thing is just muddy and murky. And it would be a lot clearer if we had a – this is my, my thought. If we had a base nurse practitioner that was a generalist, call it whatever you want, just call it an NP, okay? And you you rotate through fields like uh, family, internal medicine, pediatrics, etc. And you rotate through the acute care phase. You ro- rotate through um, radiology, emergency medicine, surgery, orthopedics, and then after that, you get a doctorate that focuses on whatever you want your subspecialty to be. You want it to be hospital medicine. You want to be inpatient work. You want to be outpatient work. You want to do family practice. You want to do pediatrics solely. Okay. Those kinds of things will be, that would make it a lot easier for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, you know, what I, I anticipate that people will be saying like, well, so what's your solution? And this sort of gets at, I think where, your mind is at there. But before we go too deeply into that, I want to ask you, I know that you are not a fan of the consensus model, and I understand why. 
if you had to steel man the the argument for the consensus model, how would you do that? What do you see as being for the consensus? Yeah, like if you had to give your rationale for why it could have been a good idea, even though it seems to have failed. Absolutely, it was a great idea. Okay, It, it was it was a great idea, and the idea was to make it to where the uh, the scope of practice confusion was not there. That was the idea. Phenomenal idea because that clears up uh, problems with credentialing, problems with state boards, problems with uh, insurance panels. All those things get cleared up. For instance, if I am a nurse practitioner and I get my doctorate in family practice, then my insurance panel knows I do family practice. Right. If I am a nurse practitioner and get my doctorate in what we call acute care today or hospital-based medicine, then the insurance panel knows that they can, I can bill for inpatient stuff. Whereas if I'm a nurse practitioner, I get my family and I work out in a critical access, then billing inpatient is probably okay as well because my base NP gave me training in that area. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, but it shouldn't be my majority of my of my practice. Okay, and if I'm going to do that, then I need to go back. And I understand the thought process. I think it's a great. I think the base thought was a good idea, but the implementation just clinically wasn't relevant to what the real world application is. For instance, if you look at if you look at ERs across the country, this is the best example because it's it's a one of those crux issues where people have a different idea of who should be working there. If you look at an ER across the country, the majority of NPs working in emergency departments are family trained. It's like 86 to 90%. Mm-hmm. So if we enact the consensus model today, tomorrow, are those people all out of jobs. What, what do we tell the, what do we tell the people that they, they took care of, that they took care of yesterday? Well, the person is not, is not adequately able to care for you anymore. I mean, it's just a, it's a weird, confounding way to look at things. And what we didn't have was a reality of practice, what I call a reality of practice. The reality of practice is urgent care is part of family practice. That's what it should be. OK, but right now they're calling family practice primary care. And if you want a primary care NP, then you need to change the designation from family practice for primary care NP because it's not what you're it's not what you're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just it's it's kind of a the the base was a great idea. Like I said, there's a couple things that were really good from a thought standpoint, but the the end result was too many people were saying, "Well, no, I want to be a PDNP. I don't need to get training in anything else." Yeah, and I think I think if we had a base that was more of a generalist, one, it would protect us all. It would give us a better a better understanding of medicine as a whole. And it would give us better protection from a legal standpoint and an insurance standpoint. And if we increase the number of that clinical hours to offset that, it gives us a better argument when we talk about full practice authority, too. Mm -hmm. Can you tell people what the actual standards are for number of clinical hours right now? Uh, 500. 500 hours total, correct? Total, yes. Okay. 500 hours total. And so let me ask you, because this is where I was getting at earlier, is like lay out a little bit of what's your solution? You started talking about a base generalist model. Would that be like a master's degree? And when you say increase the hours, so can you just kind of lay out like what, what would your ideal situation be if you could be like the nursing czar that could make this stuff happen? If, 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 I, had, if I had my control over everything, yes. 
you know, I was suddenly in charge of NP education across the world. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is what I would do. I would do a base generalist NP for everybody. This is your entry to practice. Okay. So, and that would be the master's level. And now here's part of the problem that we have right now is the reason NPs were so sought after when we were competing at a lower, at lower, lower saturation levels is because we had, we had experience prior as a nurse. So I think that's, I think that's paramount. I know there's literature that says that um, it's not necessarily needed, but I disagree with that hundred percent. I think it is hundred percent necessary because it gives you, it allow, it teaches you how to recognize sick versus not sick. And that's the most important step any anytime you see any patient ever is walking in the room. Is a patient sick or not sick? And having that that training helps that. Okay. Now, if I'm doing it, we have a generalist base and two thousand hours of, of training minimum to get your NP. Okay. Now, on top of that, I would do a doctorate that has four thousand hours of clinical training. And that would be your special subspecialty area. For instance, if you go work in orthopedics, you get an orthopedic NP. And part of your training is doing first assist. Part of your training is um, MRI, CTs, radiology, extensive amount, okay? Mm -hmm. And part of your training is more intense anatomic related to uh, orthopedics, right? So, like, if you walk out right now and ask um, any NP, name all the small bones, all the, all the carpals in the hand, how many can do it, right? Well, is it really relative to doing family practice? Probably not. But when I'm in orthopedics, it's, it's paramount knowledge, right? Right. But knowing which bone is the most, most commonly fractured in the foot and knowing that you have to know that stuff. If you're in orthopedics, you have to know that stuff. If you're in emergency medicine, you have to know that stuff. If you're working in urgent care, right, you know, right. those kinds of things would be more tailored towards the NP who's getting their doctorate in orthopedics or getting their doctorate in neurosurgery or cardio CV, CV surgery or general surgery or emergency medicine, or, you know, I want to be an urgent care specialist. Great. You know, all those things are okay, but having that additional training and having that additional time prepares you to actually work in that setting. And if we focus clinically then, I mean, part of part of this would be you need to understand how to bill. You need to understand how you get paid. So if you don't understand how to generate a bill, there's no way that you can understand what you need to do moving forward. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, like, for instance, if we did the generalist 2,000 hours requirement, say 400 for internal medicine, which includes inpatient stuff, You'd have psychiatry hours, like 200 hours, like 400 hours of peds, family practice. Um, you'd have to have a minimum amount of time to spend in OB and surgery and emergency medicine with a cardiologist, with a radiologist, with an orthopedist. And then probably about, I don't know, 400 hours left over that you could spend in elective areas. For instance, let's say you really like doing inpatient medicine. So you could take that last 400 hours and spend it in inpatient medicine prepping for your doctor. Or say, um, I'm your instructor. And I said, Ian, uh, I looked at that case that you that you presented. Um, the chest x-ray was obviously congestive heart failure. You marked it as normal <laughs> on your interpretation. You need to spend some more time in radiology. So I want you to do another 100 hours with the radiologist. Yeah, that would make sense. 
Okay. So that way as a, as a professor, I would have more control over the clinical education of my students. Does that make sense? It does. I'm starting to put together, and you can correct me if this sounds wrong, but what I'm kind of hearing, I was going to ask why, like, what's the justification for the 2000 and the 4000 hours, but actually, I think you're justifying it now by saying, like, if you think about what are the most relevant sub disciplines of, say, family practice that you need to be a well rounded clinician, here are those pieces. And if you put them together in terms of number of hundreds of hours, here's how you come up with that 2000 hours. Does that sound about right to you? Yes, yes, that's part of it. The other part of it is we have to look at what our detractors say when we when we uh, go into discussions at the uh, legislative level, hmm. right? And the the most common detractor is not enough clinical hours. Increasing the clinical time will help fight that argument at the legislative level when we when we go to discuss full practice authority, independent practice, whatever you want to call it. But to me, that's an that's a bonus. To me, I want you, when you walk out, when you graduate, you should be able to go the next day and work competently. The next day, you should be able to walk into the office. For instance, you get your 2,000 hours, and then you go on and get your, I don't know, let's call it an NPD, right, nurse practitioner doctorate, and you get your additional 4,000 hours in, say, um, in hospital medicine. Uh, the next day, you should have a hospital going, hey, Ian, I need you to come cover for us. Mm. Okay, I'll be there. And, and you'll know what is appropriate salary because that will be part of your training. Part of your training is understanding how billing works. So you know what value you bring to the uh, whatever practice you're going to, family, surgery, hospitalist, whatever it happens to be, right? Right. You understand what your value is. Right? So you, but you'd understand that and you'd understand what to do and how to justify your salary, how to ensure that you're being not taken advantage of, one, and two, that you're providing value to the practice. So all those things, but I think that introducing uh, actual true clinical doctorate to our paradigm in nursing would be extremely beneficial. This is one of those things that is really kind of a hot topic because when we look at uh, the current DNP, many consider that a, quote, clinical doctorate, okay, when it, in actuality, as you know, it's a practice doctorate, and there is no such, quote, definition of a clinical doctorate, but I'm going to give you what I define as a clinical doctorate, okay? A clinical doctorate is a program that prepares students with the competencies required to enter clinical practice and become licensed, mm -hmm. okay? And the reason the DNP does not fit that, as you're aware, is the DNP does not teach clinical competencies, right? So if it did, then everyone who got a DNP would be able to perform a set number of clinical competencies and would be able to license to perform that. But as you know, DNP has informatics, et cetera. So it's not truly... A, clinical in that role. That's why I think we should have a clinical doctorate for nursing. I'm curious. So one of the things, um, I've talked about this with a couple listeners actually via email who've been interested in this question too. One of the things that I've talked about on previous episodes is how there's a distinction between 
an advanced practice professional doctorate like the DNP or the DSW or whatever, and then the direct entry professional doctorates like the MD, the DMD, um, and these, you know, like the DPT, where you get out and you get your licensure at the doctoral level, like you said, with these clinical competencies, whereas the license for NPs sits at the master's level, and then you get these additional courses to advance your practice. And there's a significant argument for why they do that. But then there's the argument for, as you're proposing here, turning it into a direct entry professional doctorate or a, quote, clinical doctorate. So that's a long-winded way for me to get to my question, which is like, how do how would we let's in a hypothetical world say that we have decided that the right course of action is to do that how would you do that the first thing is designing designing or having elements in place that would would prepare would prepare that that doctoral level right of clinical practice and what we have now is if you look at the literature there's there is no no added benefit to the DNP to a to an NP from a clinical perspective. Okay, the literature just it's not there. There's not anything that that adds value. So in my this is the way I look at it. If you add that additional training and you add that that specific and, and I think it has to be spe specific. Every single specialty, I think we need to move that specialist to the doctoral level. Mm. And what that will do over time you will find that the doctorally prepared people will become preferred, okay? And then over time, they will become required for the specialty work. So what you have is uh, bolstering your, your workforce, as it were, at a higher level so they become preferred. It's like if you look at – the best example I have of this is, is emergency medicine residency, okay? So 20, 25 years ago, emergency medicine became its own specialty and they started having residency training. And then that was nobody really knew what it was. And eventually that became um, preferred. And now, after about a decade, it became required in the big cities. You had to have emergency medicine residency trained in, or board certified in order to work in the emergency departments. And then over time, that's spread out to the smaller areas to where now, in a population of 100,000 or more, any ER that's there has to have a board-certified EMD doc mm. because they've recognized the value in the additional training and the specific training. And I think if we switch our specialists to the doctoral level, which it needs to be done, I think I think the DNP moving that bar was the right thing to do. I just think the way that we did it was not in the best interest of a clinical degree. So I have to, I want to stop because um, there's something that you touched on, which I think is crucially important, which is that there's no data to indicate that the DNP prepared nurse practitioner is more proficient than the master's prepared. And there's a difference between evidence of absence and absence of evidence. And right now there's just an absence of evidence there's just no data on this. I've looked. There's nothing out there. I can find zero, nothing. zero. And I think it's it does a disservice to master's prepared nurse practitioners who have done phenomenally for decades to sort of just decide that because we're doctorally prepared or going to be in some cases, that that intrinsically means our clinical practice will be better. You have to demonstrate that that's the case. And when you bring up something like the 
emergency medicine residency, there's data that shows that the outcomes of board-certified EM docs is better than non-emergency trained docs. There's actual data to that effect. It's not just a preference thing. Um, and so, so we, we need why, that data as well. <laughs> why, why is there a dearth of data on the DMP? I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is the, the data doesn't exist. Right. There is no data that's there. Let's, let's put it this way. There is no data that supports using the DNP as an endpoint for an NP. There's not any data that supports that yet. All of our professional organizations like the national organization of nurse practitioner faculty are pushing for the DNP to be the entry level. Maybe this is just a naive way to look at it, but I feel like people look at the medical doctor or the DO who have that same type of pathway and they're the standard and it's trying to meet that same standard. If we're to meet a standard, shouldn't we make sure that the standard is improving on the current? If it doesn't improve the current standard, why are we changing? You know, I'm looking at this purely from a clinical standpoint. If clinically this does not make me a better clinician, why am I doing this? And that I think is what you're getting at here is like you have to add that value in from the clinical side. Absolutely. That's where I think adding the making the specialist doctorally prepared only would add actually add tons of clinical value. Because mm. if you add 4,000 hours of training and you're adding specialty education on top of that, then – for instance, if you work emergency medicine, there's a there's a, a simple test that we do for EM people that come in. What's the the most important question you have to ask somebody who has a puncture wound on their foot, right? And the most common answer to that is, well, does the patient have diabetes? Because I'm worried about infection, right? And that's 100% the wrong answer. The correct answer is, is the person wearing a shoe? Okay. And the reason that that's important is because the glue on the bottom of shoes carries pseudomonas. So if you puncture wound through the shoe, then you have to cover pseudomonas when you're covering for infection. Okay. And that's something that you get when you get specialized education, right? Whereas if you have a general education, you don't get that. Okay. And that's why I think having that and seeing that adds so much more value to your clinicians and well, here's here's an example, okay, for you. I walked in to work at a, a practice uh, in, a, in emergency medicine, and I walked in the door, sat down next to the doc. It's my first day working at this place, and he looked at me and said, I can't believe we hired a nurse practitioner. We should have hired PAs. NPs are worthless. They're so bad. We, <laughs> we should never hire NPs ever. Wow. And I said, well, I don't know who you've been working with, but it wasn't with me. And a month later, he, he's, he says, I want to work with you every shift. You know, it's it's a it's it's a quality issue when it comes from that standpoint. And part of the problem is we go back to scope of practice and people working someplace where they don't have the, quote, education and training. And if we and if we we don't have to change our scope of practice, man, all we have to do is shift that doctoral level away from the current academic prepared education, leadership, informatics role to a clinical role. I'd sign it up tomorrow. And I guarantee you everybody that I know would sign up in a heartbeat because the, what's one of the most common conversations we have on these Facebook groups. And I, I run a, one of the, one of Facebook's group is called clinical nurse practitioners for change, which is um, one of the groups that where we have these discussions about, about, and there, we have academics and we have uh, A&P fellows, we have non fellows in there. And sometimes the discussions get heated, but one of the things that they, the clinicians say is if you have a clinical doctorate, I will sign up tomorrow. 
mm. tomorrow. And the DNP served one of the most important functions that it has served was elevating the number of doctorally prepared nurses in in uh, the NP world. And that was a phenomenal thing because we had such a dearth of educators, right? right? Nobody was getting their PhD because the NP role was more profitable. So people were not doing it. People weren't going and getting it. They were getting their NP and stopping. And so we were running out of PhD prepared nurses. And it was a problem from an educational standpoint. The DNP did solve that issue. Hundred percent. I, I will say, give it credit for that. It has done an excellent job in ensuring that we have an adequate number of prepared doctoral nurses. But the DNP is not a PhD, okay, and the DNP is not a, a clinical role, right? It doesn't add a lot of value from a clinical standpoint that we can prove, okay. And I think that adding a, I, I think there needs to be a third doctoral role, and it needs to be a clinical role. Okay. And if you give people those options, I think I think we will have – you will not find an NP who is not doctorally prepared in 10 years. I think you're probably – Even if we don't mandate it. Even if we don't mandate it like they're trying to mandate the DMP. You don't have to mandate it. I guarantee you people will gravitate towards specialization as specialization becomes required. That's an interesting – Oh, here's another example of that. Go ahead. You're familiar with the, e, the emergency nurse practitioner, the ENP? Yes, Okay, so it's a it's a it's a bludgeoning new new part of the NP world, and I think currently there's only about 400 NPs in, in the country who have that degree or have that specialization. In Houston, Texas, there's a school that has an EMP program. You cannot work in Houston as an NP in an ER without an EMP. They won't hire you because it's become so prominent there that. They realize the difference in, in education and training, and you have to have that now. And I think at some point in the future, that will spread out across the country and be to where every, every ER has an ENP if you're working as an NP in the ER. Right? I, I but the you. flip side of that is the base – in order to get an ENP, you have to have a family nurse practitioner. You can't get the ENP and be in acute care. So one of the things that I'm finding super interesting about this, because what I'm hearing you say is that there are some good ideas and some of the things that have been tried, but as things improve, they will proliferate of their own accord. There won't need to be any force. And um, right. people will just do it because either it'll be the new standard and or they'll have a preference for it, which would make sense. Um, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this conversation too is... You know, when I did my interview for the DNP program, uh, the person who interviewed me asked me what I thought my role as a future DNP would be. And I explained that the DNP is often perceived to be a clinical degree, but that's not actually how I see my future role. I obviously will be licensed at the master's level, but from the DNP standpoint, it's about using sort of the knowledge of critical appraisal of the nursing literature to translate research to practice. And it's that translational gap that the DNP is supposed to fill. And then, of course, as you mentioned, some educational components. And it was kind of funny because afterward, they looked at me and said, most people we interview don't understand that that's actually the role of the DNP. They think they're coming in for a clinical doctorate. And I think right. what's interesting about that is that since the AACN in 2006 published their report on it, they've been talking about it as a practice doctorate and not a clinical doctorate. They even say yes. this is not a clinical doctorate. And yet most students believe this to be a clinical doctorate. 
And I think that tells us something about what we're trying well, to do versus you, what people you realize want. that the reason there's a couple reasons for that, I think. And this is my opinion, solely my opinion on that. The first sure. reason is lots of schools advertise it as a clinical doctorate, even though the AACN in their one of their papers, they had a position paper on, on the DNP. They said not to use the term clinical when describing the DNP, which I agree with a thousand percent. But when people are encouraging saying, well, you have to get a DNP to be an NP, then they, then in their mind, they think, well, then it's a clinical doctorate. Because right. I can't get an NP without being a, a, a DNP anymore. Right. And, I and think, that's why I think we need to separate and go with a pure, true clinical pathway. That makes sense. And this is where a lot of that confusion comes from. But I want to push back a little from the standpoint of if we were to, say, create a third prong and call it the NPD, nurse practitioner doctorate, or, or something like or that. Whatever. Or whatever. Or whatever. What yeah. do you foresee as being, I mean, don't you think that's just going to create more confusion and um, more p kind of pushback against the profession from, or do you think that as that proves itself, it will just, all the other stuff would fall away? Like, wh how do you see that? I, I, I think that, I think what you, what you're doing it, what you would do was clear things up. Okay. And unmuddy the waters. Right. So it's, it's. Right now, it's difficult for people to understand because there's so much confusion regarding the DNP. I mean, even people who have the DNP think it's a clinical degree. And, you know, you know it's, it's very, very difficult for people to understand, especially when you're getting a DNP with your NP, that they are not the same. Right. And people think they're synonymous when they're not, which is why I think we need to split that out and and, and actually get a true clinical pathway. So that way people understand that, okay, you have a DNP in informatics. Well, I understand what that is. I understand what your role is. Right. You have a, let's say NPD in emergency medicine. I understand you are a specialist in emergency medicine or an NPD in hospitalist or family practice or uh, NNP or, or a, a PD acute care, you know, that gives you a better idea of what they're, doctorate training is because again when, when and this comes back to to me from a clinical aspect credentialing and insurance panels don't understand what a dnp is have no clue i mean it's frustrating from a from a clinical perspective because you're trying to say well no that the dnp doesn't matter clinically the their clinical training was at the master's level and they're having this this additional doctoral training which is not necessarily clinical now, they may have a clinical research project, but that's not necessarily additional clinical training. Of course, there's there are some programs, um, like obviously I won't name any names, but there are some programs that do offer additional hours in a certain specialized area, some that offer mm -hmm. specialty tracks, but this gets at the problem of the variability among programs throughout the country for the DNP. And this has been in the research for years that there's high variability among DNP programs. But so I want to I want to touch on one thing that I think is important to say, and I think that I can anticipate some pushback here, and then I want to ask you uh, another question. So firstly, I would say, I, I just recently wrote a paper and um, talked about a little bit in the intro the history of the doctoral programs in nursing, and I mean we've had the ND, we've had the DNS, we've had the DSN, we've had the PhD. We've had the DNP now, um, and 
And so you're also proposing an NPD and like, what the hell are we doing? That's, that's part of the question. I think I can hear people saying if, if they know their history. Right. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that to be like, to shit on your idea. I think that your idea is an, a really interesting one, but I think some people would say like, why not just reformulate aspects of the DNP instead of creating a no, yet another doctorate. Um, and then I would say that my question to you, and you can uh, touch on that as well, if you want. But my, my next question to you is like, what if we did nothing? Like, what's the ultimate end point if we were to just keep things as they are? Because I think some people might be like, well, John, this sounds interesting, but it also, like, what would be the real issue with just leaving it as it is? Okay, let's, let's back up to the first part of that. The, the, remember, the DNP was supposed to eliminate all the other clinical doctors because it was initially designed to be a clinical endpoint. Right. That was the initial thought process, which is why we did away with all the DNSs, DNSC, NDs, in I can't remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to the next part was why do we why do we need to do this? Why not reformulate the DNP? Okay. So how do you tell the difference between somebody who had a DNP prior to reformulation and post reformulation? So you're sort of getting at the same problem of like the FNP before the consensus model and then after it's like right. similar issue here. Right. It's the exact problem. But the problem is with this is I'm going to be telling you that you have clinically prepared people who are experts in their clinical field who have received an additional 4,000 hours of training or somebody who has a DNP in informatics. How can I tell the difference between the two? Mm. And well, go with nursing's prototypical answer is to add additional letters to the end of it. So you go from a DN, you go DNPI, DNPC, DNPCAB, you know, and that's just the alphabet soup is a is another problem in our profession that I won't touch on. But that's that that's a way that you could handle it. But I don't think that's the right way to do it. I think the DNP is already that ship has sailed. And I think that trying to reel it back in is a bad idea. I think the DNP sets a pathway that is needed in nursing. We need a non-PhD translational research doctorate. We I need agree. one. And I think it filled that role 100%. We need the PhD doctorate 100%. But we also need a clinical pathway for those of us who are clinicians. I think that's necessary as well because you need – Here's another way to put it, okay? If I am going to my NP program and I'm being trained by an NP there, how do I know that they're a clinical expert in the area that they're, that they're training me on? Okay, for instance, let's say I'm giving a lecture on cardiology. How do I know that that person's a clinical expert on cardiology? Ideally, their, their, their lecture would, would give you that information, right? You would you'd be able to tell by coercing with them. But if I have a clinical doctorate in cardiology and I'm giving you your cardiology lecture, you know that I'm a I'm an expert in cardiology. That's how we know. Versus if I have a DNP in informatics and I'm a, 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 an adult NP who works in um, internal medicine and I'm I'm giving you a nephrology lecture and am I am I truly an expert on nephrology? I mean, not necessarily that I don't have the capacity to give that lecture, but am I truly an expert? Like if I was doing a doctorate in orthopedics, I would want to know that the guys teaching me or girls were experts in orthopedics. I would want to know that they know that. And if I ask a question, they don't have to spend two hours looking it up. They can just go, oh, yeah, this is this is related to the ACA Act. 
subsection whatever, and this is why we're doing this. Mm. So that makes sense. And having an expert in that area, right? All of that makes sense. So, you know, I, I think that we've, we've gotten two pathways exceptional and we're just missing the third because we're so focused on making a doctorate work that we're not looking to see if it's working. Mm. And the literature says there's, there's no evidence that it's beneficial. So do you mind if I ask then, um, and I promise I'll stop doing the branching questions because, but I'm fascinated by this. So, I, you know, we can, we can, Ian, we can always do another one. If the we, listeners want to do, we can, we can, we can do two, three, four, five episodes. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but so, you know, it's interesting because, um, in the medical profession, you mentioned cardiology, you know, uh, a physician comes out of medical school, they're an MD, they're a baby, they know nothing, they do residency for, let's say, three years, they're in internal medicine, and then they do cardiology for three years, and then they do electrophysiology for two years, and they've had all this additional training atop their doctorate. Is there an argument for just doing fellowship training instead? Or, you know, what do you see as being the issue with that? I, I, I think... Here... <laughs> I think we I think we need a clinical doctorate pathway, mm-hmm. and I think that um, how you receive that training in the clinical doctorate is a matter of discussion, right? So there's to me there's two ways. For instance, the guy like me who's been in ER for 20 years, I would do a fellowship, probably where I'm at right now, and through working I would gain my additional hours, and then I would have a academic oversight. Who would say, John? Uh, you got to go. You, you need to be work. You need to read more films. You're gonna have to spend your days off with radiologists. Okay, All right. Okay, that kind of. Or you need to spend more time putting in central lines. Your doc called, said you missed a central line, so we're gonna send you to IR. You're gonna. You need to put in 15 central lines. Okay, makes sense. Okay, those kinds of things are make sense to me. Or the the person like let's say you who's going through school. And then you do a residency type 4,000 hours of training where you're actively working as you're going through school, doing the clinical aspect in addition to your academic training. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. To me, that's the difference between a fellowship and a residency. Okay. So which way you look at it to me is, is kind of a, it's, it's a, it depends on the, the pathway. I think eventually what would happen after several years is the fellowship would turn into a, uh, a a retraining method. So let's say, for instance, you're doing hospital-based medicine for you know the last ten years, and a uh, <clears throat> neuroradiologist calls and says, "Hey, Ian, you're really smart. I really like you. I want you to come to neuroradiology. We need people to do uh, caths on brains, okay? Because we're starting to do preemptive." Uh, stenting in brains now okay mm-hmm. to prevent strokes okay let's just pretend that's where we go right <laughs> i can already so, feel you know, the I'm, hair on the the back of all of the physicians listening's necks right now when you are saying that well, it's I mean, hypothetical if, if i realize it, but it's, if, if you look at it um, from a hypothetical standpoint um 20 years ago we had fnps doing egds and colonoscopies right 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 i mean they've been doing screening egds and colonoscopies for years right so what you would not be doing is the interventional part that requires the physician, but you could do the screening part where you go in, you inject the dye. Hey, we need a stent in the wherever. <laughs> and the doc comes in. Yep, we sure do. Puts the stent in. Okay. Right. 
that's that's um, even screening uh, screening uh, uh, heart casts were being done by NPs 15 years ago by F- FNPs, by the way. Right. Wow. So this is stuff that's that has been done and has been proven that it can be done safely. However, the, you know why we're not doing that stuff now? Is insurance had of... no couldn't figure out how to reimburse it. Oh, they couldn't get reimbursed for it. That's why it's those those programs stopped. It had nothing to do with the competence of the procedure or the skill of the procedure. It had to do with the uh, lack of reimbursability from the insurance company. I mean, if you ask any gastroenterologist around, everybody who's fifty needs a, needs an easy, needs a colonoscopy, right? Right. There's not enough GI docs around to do that. There's just not enough of them. Right. And so the answer is you can get an NP trained to do a scope. And if there's a problem, they call the GI. He comes in, fixes the problem. Done. Let's um, go back to our original premise. You've been you've been asked by the neuroradiologist to come so you, he can teach you how to do this. So then you would do a fellowship at that point with him in neuroradiology. So you get your subspecialty fellowship. Does that make sense? Yes. And so that way you get your retraining method because right now there's not an, a – way in our scope of practice to have a formal retraining in some of these specialties. And that makes it difficult for us to, when we talk about scope of practice and whether or not you need sued for something, it makes it difficult for us to say, hey, I'm competent to do this. I was trained. Well, now academia is saying, well, where's your formal training? This gives us a pathway to do that. Right. Absolutely. So, um, John, I have like 15 more questions I want to ask you. I know I want to ask you about your your theory, your philosophical theory. I want to ask you about your definitions of nursing, nursing science. But we'll save that for a part B. So I'll title this part A or part one. But my last question I do have to ask you, if it's okay, is about what you're doing in Texas now. Like what you're taking some initiative at this very moment in align with your your theory that you've been setting out for us here. So tell us a little bit about that. What are you, what do you have going on? Well, right now I'm just trying to get in with legislatures to try and try and see if we can correct some of these issues. Right. And this is absolutely probably the worst way to try to solve our education problems, but we have to start somewhere and we have to get these issues solved. We have way too many NPs coming out. Our, our, uh, we have oversaturation issues. We have issues with education. I mean, one of our schools is being investigated by the DOJ. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or um, not. If not, I can not. send you a link. It's very interesting. Yes, please do. Uh, we we'll probably probably keep that off that part off the air. But um, there's 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 a lot of interesting things going on from that standpoint. And you have businesses who are refusing to hire from specific schools. You have businesses who are refusing to even accept applications from NPs from specific schools. Because they, and this is the quote that I get when I interview these people, is we are concerned about the quality of care of our patients. I think we'll also have to have a separate conversation, maybe a part three, on <laughs> on on what exactly the issue is with this divide between practice and academia. Oh. Because this, I well, think, is a good example. Uh, you mentioned before we got onto the recording about like business practices have hard endpoint outcomes, uh, you know, financial yes. or whatever. And so they can't afford to whatever the point is, like there's this long history of this chasm between practice and between uh, the ivory tower. And my personal objective is to sort of bridge those things. I think that's very much needed right now. But this seems to me to be an, a good example of 
how that manifests in reality on the ground. Absolutely. And the problem is if you don't understand or recognize that there's a problem, you don't know what questions to ask in order to figure out how to solve the problem. Mm. You know, and that's been that's part of been my goal in doing this is is if we increase the hours, we, we refocus our education on the clinical aspect, then we solve those issues and right. we make ourselves more valuable to the healthcare paradigm. You make yourself more valuable to the healthcare paradigm. You become requested and then you become required like the EMT or the the. Uh, emergency medicine uh, residents. Oh, absolutely. So how are you being received right now with this like proposal that you have going on and you're trying to, like you said, meet with the legislature? How's that reception going Um, for you? uh, Texas has been kind of uh, under inclement weather problem for a little while. (laughs) Yes, it has. So So it's been kind of, everything's getting kind of pushed off. I've had some um, interesting conversations, but I don't know that it's gotten any further than that. I'm uh, unfortunately my schedule is exceptionally heavy right now, so getting days to where we can meet and line up is very difficult. But it is definitely something that I'm I'm actively pursuing. Great. Well, you'll have to keep us updated. Um, so tell us before you go, tell us how people can learn more about what you're doing. Like, where can they follow you? And I know you have a YouTube channel. Give us a little bit of that. Oh, and yeah. We'll have okay. you back so, another time. Um, Facebook's the best way to get a hold of me. I do have a YouTube channel called JCVNP, where I just try to help people. You know, uh, you have a question about anything NP related. I'll give you my honest answer. So I'm going to give you what my opinion is and what I've found from practice and from research. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a more of a clinical, clinical take on things, but it's, it's, uh, it's it just, just want to help the profession, man. And at the end of the day, it's my profession and I want to be, I want it to be successful. And I want, honestly, I want to be the average NP. I want everybody else to be above average and better than me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. And if I ever review a paper you are an author on or would like to join me to discuss some other relevant project you're doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time. <laughs>